So today on the podcast, I'm going to talk about death. If that's not the right fit for you today, totally understand that. Skip this one and uh, tune in next time when we talk about some other light and happy topic. We plan to talk through the issues faced by startup founders and the people close to them. That overused phrase, work-life balance. It is an amazingly focusing time. This is what we do, you know, aside from our families, this is our whole work life. I am also known as Dr. Wine. and his or her significant other would both get value from the episode. The reason that I'm talking about this today is that my dad died a couple days ago. It's pretty raw. It's pretty new. So I'm not sure that I have it all processed and figured out. And if you take issue or disagree with something that I say or talk about on the podcast today, um, I'll just ask you to be a little bit gracious with me because... It's not something that is neatly packaged for public consumption. But I think the thing about it is that death never is. One of the reasons that I'm deciding to talk about it and even talk about it while it's kind of raw is because so few people do. And I'm not the first of my friends to lose a parent. I certainly won't be the last. It is a universal experience. Like really, if all goes well, if all goes the way it's supposed to... We will all have the experience of surviving our parents. We will walk through their deaths with them in some capacity or another. And that's the most expected death, right? The death of the generation ahead of us. But many of us have already experienced the death of our peers or perhaps the death of a spouse, in some cases, even the death of a child. And it's just not something that any of us are well prepared for. And I got to be honest, I don't know that you can be well prepared for it. So lower your expectations for the value of this particular podcast because I can't prepare you for the tremendous grief that you experience when you lose somebody that you care about. But I do want to talk a little bit about our journey because it's top of mind for me and because I've been thinking a lot about it, about things that I or my family did well and maybe things that I wish I would have done differently or better. And I want to be clear, I I don't want to be empathy-seeking. There's going to be no call for action, no donations needed. But I would like to plant in your mind a couple of questions that might be important for you to consider, to think about, to talk to your loved ones about. Because death is going to happen. Going to happen to the people that you love, to your parents, to you. So my dad's name was Tim. And he was 65 years old when he died. A little less than two years ago, he had some flu-like symptoms. He was just not feeling well, kept not feeling well, and went to his doctors. They didn't really find anything. Eventually, he ended up in the ER, and a mass was discovered in his esophagus. And it was a giant mass. It was the length of his esophagus and all the way through the wall of the esophagus. And this was like very surprising because my dad didn't have any of the traditional risk factors for esophageal cancer, did not drink alcohol, did not smoke, did not, you know, do the things that tend to be the risk factors for cancer, especially esophageal cancer. 
And he knew kind of right away that it was bad because the tumor was so big. Um, Because Rob and I live so close to Mayo Clinic, we brought him from California to Minnesota and made arrangements for him to have a really thorough assessment at Mayo Clinic, obviously one of the best uh, cancer centers in the world, and for them to develop his treatment plan. And so that all happened. And I think it was really early on in that process that I at least understood that this would be terminal, that this was the you know, going to be a life-ending diagnosis. It was interesting, though, because the medical staff was really vague about that. And I understand why that's a very hard thing to tell someone. But they would say things like, some people choose not to do chemo. Or they would say things like, if you do chemo, you will be on chemotherapy for the rest of your life. Or we don't really have a clinical trial. Surgery is not an option. Radiation isn't an option. But nobody really sat down and said, hey, here are the stats about this. Fewer than 5% of people survive this severity of metastatic esophageal cancer longer than two years. And so, of course, me, I like looked it up. So I knew the stats and I had been researching. But it wasn't really sort of spelled out in black and white to, to my dad or to me. And I think that was one of the things that sort of carried through his experience of cancer is working with medical providers at Mayo Clinic, at UC Davis, at his hometown in Redding, California, places that have, they're highly reputable, they're really well-trained physicians, they deal with cancer every day, they're specialists in this form of cancer, but yet nobody really sat down and said, hey, look, Tim, you're dying. And I I don't know if that would have uh, changed the story or not, but my dad did choose to do chemotherapy. When the cancer moved to his brain, he chose to do radiation. He chose to do a clinical trial. He chose to do immunotherapy. So he really tried everything that was possible. He was on, I think, four different iterations of chemotherapy. And that was very in keeping with his personality. He's a fighter. He's someone who doesn't want to be bested by the odds. Like many of the entrepreneurs I know, he sort of sees, saw himself, I'm still getting used to the past tense, saw himself as somewhat of an exception to the role. And so he fought with all his might. And of course, cancer is terrible. It spread from his esophagus to his lymph nodes, to his lungs, to his liver, and finally to his brain. And I think the brain tumors were the hardest part. That happened about six months before he died. And that was really when he stopped feeling well. He felt dizzy, he felt just pretty crappy. Whereas up until that point, he felt, you know, relatively like himself, maybe with more nausea and more fatigue. So because of who my dad was and his determination to fight, it was pretty hard for us to have really candid conversations about his wishes. His wishes about burial, his financial plans, whether he wanted to fight to the very end or whether he was open to something like hospice, those kinds of conversations felt, I think, to him very inconsistent with the fighting spirit that typified the way that he addressed cancer from the beginning. And again, I don't, I don't judge him for that. I I appreciate that he had to do it in his way. But I will say, as his daughter, it made it a little tough for me because 
I wanted to make plans and I wanted to know what he wanted and what he needed so that I could make sure that that was in place to the best of my power and ability. And it also felt like there were some deeper conversations that I wanted to have about, I don't know, his reflections on his life, his his last lecture, so to speak, the things that mattered to him. I, I felt like I wanted him to sit down with me and, and you know, talk to me about the wisdom that, that he wanted to pass on, that he really wanted me to hold on to. And those kinds of things didn't happen, um, largely because he was working so hard to get better. And again, I don't judge him for that, but there are some losses in that for me as his daughter. He did his last chemotherapy on a Monday, and he felt so bad and so weak that he had a bad fall on Tuesday morning. And I was home with him in California and kind of crawled into bed next to him and said something like, Dad, you can be done. It's okay to be done. And he kind of looked at me and he said, but I need everybody to be okay. And we went through all of our family members. And I, as much as I could, sort of assured him, like, we're okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay without you. It was a really important conversation. And it felt really profound to me to be able to talk to him about it. Because that was the day that he decided that he felt ready for hospice. And hospice, at least the way that it works in, in his hometown, is that the hospice nurse comes to check on you a couple times a week. There's some, you know, supportive assistance with bathing and things like that. But pretty much all the care is provided by your family. So they bring a set of medicine. It's mostly morphine and lorazepam. And they bring a hospital bed and a wheelchair. And they kind of say, here you go. Call us if you need anything. And so... As soon as that was in place, my mom and I really began caring for him um, in every possible way. Mostly, mostly my mom doing some of the more intimate physical caring, but I was kind of in charge of medicine and just making sure that he was comfortable. And there was something really intense about caring for someone that you love that intimately when they are also that ill. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. It's definitely, definitely a lot of emotional heavy lifting to um, watch his almost hour by hour decline and listen to his breathing and sort of have the weight of the questions of like, does he need more medicine? Does he not? He's really in a lot of pain. We should move him so he doesn't get pressure sores, but he's in a lot of pain when we move him. How often do we have to, you know, there's just a lot of like, whoa, thinking about how do we do this well? And um, he was really in sort of good spirits for the first couple of days. And then his breath became more labored and he just really stopped getting up and out of bed. So he got his hospital bed on Wednesday morning. And Thursday was the last day that I took him outside. He hopped in the wheelchair. We covered him with blankets and just wheeled him down the street when he began hospice, I made plans for my brothers to come home. One brother lives in Sacramento, one brother lives in Minneapolis. And I was supposed to go back to, to Minneapolis, but I really felt like we needed to all be together probably one last time. When he began hospice, the nurse said, you know, I think he probably has a couple weeks. I'd say within two weeks. But my brothers got there on a Friday night pretty late. He said hi to them. He, you know, looked them in the face and welcomed them. And by Saturday, he was just really not with it too much anymore. 
and the nurse came by to um, put in a catheter. And she said, look, I think he really has hours. And we said, well, forget the catheter. <laughs> he didn't really want that anyway. <laughs> so we each, each person in my family took a moment with him alone and sort of said our goodbyes and held him. And, and then we kind of all gathered around his bed and I hopped in bed next to him and we turned the lights off and put on a playlist that he had been listening to throughout his cancer battle. And, you know, really were generous with the morphine. And his breath, which was really like wet and raspy and rattly, was really labored. Like you just see his chest going in and out, like he's working super hard to breathe. And then it sort of slowed down and got quieter and more shallow. And then, and then it went silent. And it was a very eerie but like also really profound moment to to watch like him leave and at least for me for my family for for us I don't I don't make a recommendation to anybody else like I'm so honored to have been able to be there with him not everybody wants that you know not everybody wants their children to see him in that state or or wants to sort of leave in the presence of others I think a lot of people die in the night by themselves they just it just feels better to them and that that it is what it is I don't know that we really get to pick in that moment but there was kind of a deep closure to be able to send him off well and toward the last couple days of his life I you know he was just really like needy and I, I was teasing him like you're going out like you came in dad like naked and needy and uh, I said it with deep affection and of course, I said it in reference to like yeah, needing help sitting up, needing help uh, drinking any water, things like that. But I also really felt like most of us enter the world amidst love. Like we enter and in the first few minutes of our lives, if all goes well, we're held, we're wrapped up, we're snuggled, we're fed, we're, we're tended to and cared for right at the beginning and that's really what it felt like, that he, he was doted on, he was cared for, he was tenderly taken care of in his last moments. And, and that's, I mean, maybe the best possible scenario. So again, I tell this story probably partially for my own good so that I can remember some of the details. And I also tell it because I think it's such an important conversation for people to have. You know, sometimes people will say things like, oh, the minute I'm drooling or the minute I can't wipe my own ass, that's the minute I, I want to be gone or I don't want anyone to do that for me. I never want my kids to do that for me. And, you know, I think, again, it's obviously a valid opinion, but I think for me, there was something so tender about being able to care for him that it feels like it, it brought the parent-child relationship full circle of returning some of the tender care that a parent provides for a kid, for a baby, of returning that full circle. So I guess some, some take-homes would be to talk with the people that you love about your wishes, their wishes. Is it significant for you to have a burial, a place where people can kind of go and return and think about you and leave flowers? 
or does that feel unnecessary to you? Is it important to your spouse? Is it important to your parents? What plans have you made for, for like your financial life? That was something that my dad sort of struggled to talk about with me, but toward the end he said there's a folder in the front of the filing cabinet. It says important papers. <laughs> and when I opened it, it was the title to the cars. It was the life insurance information. Everything that I needed was there. So even though he struggled to talk about it, he had made his plans. And that was, again, a great gift to us to know what to do and how to make plans for my mom, given that right when someone dies, you're you're often not going to want to go sorting through massive amounts of paperwork. And I know that's something that Rob and I have talked about and that's been important for me, especially given the nature of some of the businesses that Rob has had in the past where I'm not going to know what to do if if he passes away and I suddenly inherit drip or, you know, like I'm not, I'm not sure how to deal with that. So those plans are in place and I know who to call and what those wishes are. I think the other thing that was important to me in this process is that my children have some understanding of what was happening. Because my parents came to live with us while he was doing his assessment at Mayo, they they knew that grandpa was sick. They understood cancer. They knew he was there with us to to receive treatment and go to the clinic. And they saw him decline over the years, get skinnier, have less energy, not be able to play baseball with them. And so simple, open conversations about, in our case, what cancer is. And they had questions that many kids have. Is it contagious? Did grandpa do anything to get it? Will I get it? Will you get it? Those are really normal kid questions. And I think it's only when you have an open conversation with kids do they let those questions come out of their mouths instead of wondering about them in their minds. And I, I personally feel like it's a very important and compassionate part of parenting is to have open conversations about death. It's definitely a time around the death of someone. It's a time for presence. One of my parents' neighbors just showed up at their house on Friday. He died on Saturday. Showed up at my parents' house with like a giant apple pie. And just like she'd gone to Costco and just spent like $200 just buying whatever she thought we could potentially eat. And um, it was a little bit of overkill, but it was also so lovely. Because I got to tell you, in that in those last like two hours while we're sort of sitting around waiting, essentially waiting for my dad to die, knowing it's close, like we ate apple pie we, and the pie was right there. Like we didn't have to go get it. We didn't have to make anything. We were like, here's the pie on the table. Like we're going to have some pie. Um, you can judge me if you wish. It's a little bit macabre, but we had death rattle pie and the provision of food for people who are in the midst of something like this, I think is a, is a sort of traditional, but like very important gift. I think sending flowers, sending little things can be helpful. As my dad got progressively sicker, I would look for really warm, fuzzy socks and hats and uh, blankets and just things that I knew would feel cozy and good against his skin. So I think comfort, food, comfort items, if you know someone who is um, who is ill or someone whose family is going through something like this, I think they're always welcome. They're always helpful. I think it's also important to keep in mind that whatever the family pattern, however you and your family break down in your roles, will probably be true 
under the stress of death. I'm the oldest daughter. So, of course, I took kind of the bulk of caretaking and um, organizing medical stuff and just managing the the sort of details of my dad's care, helping my mom with it. And then, you know, of course, each one of my brothers took on their role in good and bad ways. <laughs> That's a story for another time. But death creates a level of stress and probably some regression that is to be expected and should be anticipated. I chose to be somewhat public, well, pretty public actually, about what was happening and record some of my thoughts um, on things like Facebook. Um, somewhat because I was experiencing some pretty challenging emotions. You know, it was within a week's time that I was in Paris having dessert with my kids to in the cancer center with my dad, in the hospice with my dad. And so for me, trying to hold those big extremes of these very alive, active kids on one hand and one part of my life and the my very, very fragile, clearly dying father in the other part of my life and to have them in such close proximity to each other just felt like these emotional gymnastics that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. So I did write about that and I did choose to share some about that. And, and overall, I'm, I'm really glad that I did because again, what I'm going through is not exceptional. There's nothing special about this process, but I feel like it's not often talked about. And, and certainly it's not the conversations that you have necessarily with other entrepreneurs, but I, I hope it's a conversation that you get more comfortable having, that I get more comfortable having um, with friends, with people I care about. And I think sometimes it is an important conversation to have with entrepreneurs because as I mentioned, those plans for what might happen to a business in the event of a crisis or the event that you die before you are ready, that can very much be something that you talk about with other founders and, and they are active in helping in that plan if you need help selling your business, selling components of the business, running the business in your absence for a time. You're going to need other people to step in and do that, and your spouse or your family members may or may not be the right people for that role. So obviously having a plan in place for a crisis is an incredibly important part of being responsible with this thing that you have created. I guess I want to wrap up by saying I didn't have nearly a perfect relationship with my father. We spent most of my junior high and high school years sort of at each other's throat. Um, maybe that's too strong. He uh, very much loved me, but was never very, uh, never felt very free to say that. So it really wasn't until he had two very large brain tumors that he regularly said, I love you when he would be on the phone with me. And he was not uh, deeply physically affectionate, not not really a hugger, not someone who did a lot of cuddling. But for some reason, the way that he died and the way that I was able to be present for him in his death feels like it's redeemed a little bit of that. I'm sure he had his own complicated reasons for how he decided to show up in our family or to show up in his relationship with me. But I felt like I showed up the way that I wanted to. Um, I felt like I showed up with my with my whole heart and my hands and my arms and my willingness to be present in hard places and be 
tender and loving and, you know, dole out the morphine as needed. <laughs> so I guess even if you're listening to this and you have, you know, a not idyllic relationship with your parent, in some of those moments, it's not about them. It's about you. It's about who you decide to be in those edges of life, in those moments where this is only going to happen once. You're only going to have one mom, one dad. They're only going to die once. <laughs> so thinking for yourself about as much as is on your plate, as much as you can control about who you are and how you show up, that you, you show up in the best possible way. So again, I realize that this is a, a deeply uh, personal episode of the podcast, and I thank you for listening. I hope it hasn't felt too self-indulgent to you. I definitely, you know, will have my own, I think, journey processing through this. So I don't mean to sound like I've got it all figured out or that it's um, wrapped up with a nice little bow. I, I don't, I don't totally feel like that. But I do feel like rest in peace applies here. That's my wish for him, and. I think I did my very best to send him off in the most peaceful way. So I'm just going to close by reading his obituary. And then I promise we'll talk about something really lively and lovely next week. <laughs> so Tim Muterspa passed from this life to the next on November 10th, 2018, after he lost his hard-fought battle with cancer. He died at home holding hands with Marcia, his wife of 45 years. All three of his children were with him when he died. Sherry Walling of Minneapolis, Dan Muterspa of Sacramento, and Dave Muterspa also of Minneapolis. His beloved daughter-in-law, Christy, was also present, as was his golden retriever, Rosie. Tim was born in 1953 and was raised in Indiana. At the age of 24, he gathered his motorcycle and his bride and set out for the mountains and lakes of Northern California. Redding was his home for 42 years. He had a variety of jobs throughout his years, but will be most remembered for the time he served as the zany, passionate youth pastor at Neighborhood Church of Reading. He loved Whiskey Town Lake and spent many Saturdays there with his family and his dog. He also loved baseball, especially Giants baseball. He saw to it that the two generations that followed him were well-trained in bat positioning and pitching form. For most of his adult life, he rose before dawn to work out and enjoyed the quiet beauty of the Sacramento River at sunrise. He ended most evenings hovering over the barbecue, preparing media masterpieces for his family and friends. In addition to his wife and three children, Tim leaves behind a dearly loved son-in-law, Rob, and four grandchildren. Tim is survived by his five siblings, Donna, Rick, Kathy, Marsha, and Stan, and their families. He will be dearly missed by the many friends that he shared his life with over the years. He is now enjoying a heavenly reunion with his parents, Dick and Marge Muterspa. A celebration of his life, faith, and legacy will be held, blah, blah, blah. And please abstain from wearing Dodgers apparel. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Zen Founder. And for those of you who sort of followed this journey over the years, I know many of you have asked about him and asked about me. And uh, I'm grateful for that. So go and find someone you love and give them an extra squeeze. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Zen Founder. Our theme song is A New Beginning by bensound.com, used under Creative Commons.